Thank you, guys. If you would, turn with me to the book of 1 Peter. We're nearing the end of this New Testament letter written by one of Jesus' closest friends and followers, uh, the Apostle Peter. We'll be in chapter 4 today. If you don't have uh, your own copy of God's Word, we'd love for you to grab that, uh, that black Bible that's uh, in the pew there, in the, in the chair there. We'll be on page 1016. Uh, and if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take that one with you. Uh, we'd love for you to, to have that as our gift to you so that you can have God's truth. Peter has been telling us what it looks like to live as hopeful people in a hostile world. And we're gonna, we've been talking all along about what that means. Um, Peter now continues that in 1 Peter chapter 4. Verse 1, let's give our attention to God's word. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, They might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. And while the grass withers and the flowers fade, the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask for his help. Our good and gracious king, would you teach us once again how to live? Show us what it looks like to be your people, uh, even as we live in the midst of people who may not know you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I get a weekly email, uh, a weekly prayer email from an organization called The Voice of the Martyrs. Uh, and what it does, it usually has three short stories in it just detailing um, or summarizing, rather, what uh, a person or a family or a church may be growing, going through in some part of the world uh, being persecuted for the faith. And if I had thought about it, if I had really planned it, I would have read one of those stories at the beginning of each sermon in the series because they capture so well uh, what it is that Peter is addressing. But... Uh, This morning, I want to share with you a story from Mexico 
Uh, it's the story of a man named Flavio. Flavio came to faith in Christ when, while seeking work in the city away from his home village, someone gave him a Bible. When he returned home, Flavio shared the gospel with his family, and they all trusted in Christ as well. The twelve people in Flavio's family are the only Christians in their village. Because many of Flavio's family members suffer from a degenerative disease that causes paralysis, others in their village blame the family's illness on their faith in Christ. Villagers also refuse to shop in the family's small store because of their Christian beliefs. So Flavio and his family are experiencing some of the same things that Peter's original audience was experiencing. Right? They had come to trust in Christ, and because they had, as a result of that, they were facing social and economic hardship. Now, you and I may not be able to relate precisely to that, uh, and we're going to talk about why that may be here in just a little bit, but that is actually the norm. That is the normal experience of our brothers and sisters around the world. And in fact, as Peter writes, it seems to also be the norm, or should be the norm, uh, for many Christians. Um, but the question is, how do you respond to that? How do you respond to that kind of isolation and pressure? Uh, how do you live in a society that doesn't understand you or feels threatened by what you believe? That's what Peter's been teaching us for a few weeks now. And, and last week, uh, we began to see Peter tell us how to live with hope. And this week, we're going to continue in that same vein. Uh, the idea that Peter develops here is that our living hope enables us to two things. Pursue holiness and pursue love in the face of hostility. Right, so because we have a living hope in Christ, because we've been born again, we have the ability to not only pursue holiness, but also to pursue love in, in the body. Right? So that first one, pursuing holiness, uh, deals really with those outside the church. And then when Peter talks about the second one, love, it's directed more to those inside the church. You have that outside-inside dynamic going on. And so the first thing Peter talks about is this countercultural holiness, choosing to suffer over sin. And then the second thing Peter talks about is a countercultural love, right? Being committed or committing yourself to God's family. So let's look at the first one, what it looks like to have countercultural holiness, what it means to, to choose suffering over sin. Uh, just before this, in chapter 3, verse 18, uh, Peter had talked about the suffering of Jesus, and he talks about the suffering of Jesus as what brings us to God. So actually, our, our hope is grounded in the suffering of Jesus. And now he tells us that Jesus' suffering also shows us how to live. That in the same way that Jesus suffered, even though he was righteous, so also we should have that same way of thinking. We are to arm ourselves with that same way of thinking, with that same resolve. We should expect, in fact, that this is exactly what will happen if we follow Jesus. 
And I mentioned last week uh, our adult class that happens just before this in this room, uh, looking at the book The J-Curve, talks about this whole process of what it means to follow Jesus down into suffering uh, and up into resurrection. But here Peter uses... Jesus' is suffering as, as a mindset to say this is, this is the way of thinking you ought to also have. And he says, this, he says something odd. He says, whoever has suffered in the flesh, that means in the body physically, whoever has suffered physically has ceased from sin. Now, wait a minute, Pete. Um, I haven't ceased from sin. Uh, much to my own dismay, I continue to sin. No matter how hard I try, I can't seem to stop sinning. So what, what does Peter mean when he says, uh, as we suffer, we have ceased from sin? Well, he gives us a little bit more in verse 2. He says, uh, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, in the body, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So here, here's what he's saying. When you choose to suffer... For following Jesus, you are demonstrating that you're done with sin. Not that you have, not that you don't sin, but that you're tired of it. You want no more part of it. That's not that's not the way of life you want to pursue anymore, right? You want God. You don't want to chase your own passions. You don't want to chase your own desires. You want God's will. That's what that's what Peter means. Uh, you would rather embrace the cost of suffering than compromise with sin. So think about Flavio and his family. All they have to do to get back into the good graces of their village, all they have to do to get people to come back to their little store that provides their livelihood, all they have to do is just renounce Jesus and go back. They can go back to their former way of life, uh, their former idolatries, whatever, who, whoever and whatever they worshipped. They, they can just go back into that life of sin and renounce Jesus. And so the, so the question here, what Peter's dealing with, is that of, is that of peer pressure. That, that pressure that, and, and even if we can't relate to uh, the, the physical suffering of many of our bro- Christian brothers and sisters around the world, you may be able to relate to this. The pressure to conform to society. The pressure to conform um, to the way that society wants you to live. But to not conform is to choose suffering. And so that's what Peter is saying. He says in verse 3, but remember you've, you've had enough of that. He says the time that has passed is sufficient for doing what the Gentiles, that is those who are not part of God's people... For doing what they want to do. The, the, time, the, the, the life you used to live, been there, done that. You've, that was sufficient. You've had enough of that. He says living in sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry. He's describing what life, a, what normal life in first century Greco-Roman world looked like. But he's describing what life apart from Christ looks like. He describes what it looks like to follow, as Disney would say, to follow your heart, to follow those passions and desires, to give yourself over to that. Right. In those words, there's no there's no self-control. There's no discipline there. It's all just doing whatever it is you want to do. 
But the most interesting word that he uses is the last one, the last phrase, lawless idolatries. The reason that's interesting is because in the first century, the, the first, first century world is a pluralistic world. That means um, apart from Judaism and Christianity, there was no such thing as idolatry. You just, it, was, it was par for the course to worship other gods, right? You, you usually had several. You would have gods maybe that your family had worshipped forever, and so there would be a shrine in your home. Uh, and then depending on what your job was, right, your guild would have a, a patron deity right, that you also had to worship. Uh, so think about, you know, if you, were, if you were a part of the local union, your local union would have a deity that you also paid homage to. And then you have society's gods, right? You would have had temples uh, in the city, and you, would have, and you would have had to pay homage to Caesar, right? It was, it was normal first century life to worship multiple gods. We call it a pluralistic society, okay? And so it really wasn't so much what was so offensive to people was not that the Christians wanted to worship this man named Jesus. It may have been weird, that, but, but it just the fact that they wanted to worship a man named Jesus, that wouldn't have been like, okay, you do, you do you, right? You worship whoever you want to worship. What was offensive about Christianity was its exclusivity, was that the people who worshiped Jesus said, no, there is only one God, and he came to earth as a man, and he suffered and was executed as a criminal, and he rose again. And the only way to have eternal life is to worship him. The only true God is him. The only true worship is given to him. That was offensive. And you think about, I mean, think about why that would have upset the apple cart. You basically looked at all of your neighbors and said, hey, all of those gods you're worshiping are nothing. Everything that you're giving your life to is empty, is dead. Now, that's offensive. And so what that meant then for the Christians in the first century and for Christians today, as he says in verse 4, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them. That phrase, join them, literally means run together with them. They're surprised when you don't run together with them into the same flood of debauchery. That at some point, these people had said, you know what, because I'm going to follow Jesus, I can't do that anymore. I can't run with you in the way that I used to run with you. And their friends and their neighbors would say, what? Are you crazy? And the outcome of that would be they malign you. They insult you. They verbally attack you. Peter says, choose suffering over sin. You're done with that. Choose suffering over sin. Um, he says, I know, that, I know the pressure is great to conform to your old way of life, but don't do it. Have the same resolve as Jesus to suffer, even if it costs you. And so the question for us is, if you're, if you're a Christian this morning, is your life any different than the unbelieving people around you? 
In fact, Peter, last week in chapter 3, told us that, uh, in chapter 3, verse 15, that people would ask. They would ask for a reason for the hope that is in you, right? They would see our, uh, in other places, he says, they would see our good deeds and glorify God. But is my life any different? Are, are my idols the same as my non-Christian neighbors? I don't know if you realize this, but we still live in a pluralistic society. We don't have gods of, of wood and stone, but we worship. We have gods. Gods that go by different names like wealth and work and comfort and security and family and prosperity and leisure. Those gods Does my life demonstrate that Jesus is Lord? I may say that with my mouth, but when I consider my life, am I really running after the same gods that everyone else in 21st century America is running after? Am I compromising with sin instead of choosing the costly path of obedience? Author Tim Chester puts it this way. He says, he asks, are we... Living a life that makes no sense without the gospel. It's not, that, it's not that wealth is bad. It's not that it's bad to have a home. It's not that it's bad to have property, uh, security. You know, I like security. I do like comfort, right? Those are, those are good things. But have we turned them into ultimate things? Am I demonstrating that they, in fact, are Lord of my life and Jesus is just, you know, lipstick on the pig? He's just window dressing for really what I'm worshiping, which is the approval of other people, which is the, the, the happiness of other people, whatever it may be. Are we living a life that makes no sense without the gospel? If we live out our relationship with Christ in a way that expresses itself in distinctive obedience to his lordship, then the world will either be drawn to that light or try to extinguish it. So is it possible that the reason so few of us really face persecution, is it possible that the reason we don't face persecution is the fact that my life just doesn't look any different? That there's nothing, there's nothing convicting uh, about my life that would make other people go, hmm, that's different. Countercultural holiness, choosing suffering over sin, now, what that does, though, is it removes you from society. Maybe it cuts you off from the family that you once had. So what do you do when you've been unfriended by those around you? Well, that's where Peter then talks about this new countercultural community, this committing yourself to God's family. You see, the church is designed to be an alternative community to those who have been rejected by society. And that's what uh, Peter tells us in these next several verses. He tells us really what to look for in a good church. Uh, So before I I go through these verses, I want you to ask yourself that question. What's a good church? Is it good preaching? Is it good theology? Does it have to have a certain distinctive identity about it? Is that that what makes a, a church a good church? Is it the number of people? Is it, is it the number of programs on offer, right? Do they have lots of ways to keep me busy? 
Uh, are they going to take care of my kids so they don't have to worry about it? Is that what makes a good church? Peter tells us what to look for in a good church. First, he says the end of all things is at hand or is near. He's not necessarily, when he talks about the end, he doesn't mean the last day. Rather, he means that the, he means the culmination of God's whole plan of redemption. That we are living from the moment that Jesus resurrected and ascended into heaven, we are living in the last days. That this is the final stage of God's plan that he began way back in Genesis. That's what, he, that's what Peter means when he says the end of all things is near. And because we are living in that last stage, we can live accordingly. And notice he also says it's the end of all things. That God's plan isn't just for Christians. Now, and that would have been, again, that would have been controversial in the first century, and it's controversial now. In a pluralistic society, your gods were for you and your family, right? Whatever your gods wanted you to do, that's what your gods wanted you to do. That's up to you. But here, Peter is saying, like, no, the lordship of Jesus has domain over everything. The end of all things is at hand. So what Jesus, Jesus has something to say both to those who follow him and to those who don't. And that's jarring. God's plan isn't just for Christians, but for everything and for every one. So given that fact, given that the end of all things is at near, is, is, is at hand, what, what are the marks of this alternative society? What does life in light of the end look like? It says in verse 7, Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded, not panicky, not disoriented, not gloomy, but sober-minded, clear-headed. Why? Why are we to be sober-minded and self-controlled? He says, for your prayers, so that you can pray. It's interesting that Peter's first concern, right, that the first fruit of clear thinking is that we would pray rightly. He doesn't say, you know, be sober-minded so that you can make an articulate defense or that, so you can share the gospel. He says, be sober-minded so you can pray, so you know how to talk to God, what to talk to God about, Right, so how does, how does the end being near and sober-minded and prayer, how, what's all the connection there? Well, you can imagine that if, uh, if you're suffering for following Jesus and it looks like things are going to get really bad, that the tendency is to say, like, I just give up. Right, fatalism, complacency, it's not doing any good. I might as well stop praying. And Peter says, no, 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 don't panic. Don't lose your mind, be sober-minded, be clear-headed, so you can pray. Right? This, is, this is the engine and heartbeat of the life of the church. If we are not a praying people, we are not a people. And so I would invite you again. Uh, we have two prayer meetings each week, one on Wednesday afternoon and one, one on Sunday mornings. This is what we do. Right? It's what we see the early church in Acts doing. Right? They, it says that they were devoted to 
prayer. We want to be a people who pray regularly. And when we pray, I think sometimes when you think about, uh, a, about a prayer meeting, maybe you think like, I don't know, man, I can only pray for Aunt Susie's broken hip so many times. Right? We, we think primarily about the sick list. But it's interesting how often in the New Testament when the, when the authors of the Bible pray, it doesn't have anything to do with sickness. It has everything to do with the kingdom. It has everything to do with God's glory. It has everything to do with the progress of the gospel. It's not that those things aren't important. We are told to pray for those who are sick and suffering, and we do that. But when we pray as a church, when we gather and pray as a church, I mean, we're going to do it today when Jay comes up in a little bit to lead us in prayer. He's going to pray that God's kingdom would come. That's, what, that's the first thing Jesus, actually it's the second thing. The first thing Jesus taught us to pray was to hallow God's name. The second was that his kingdom would come and his will would be done. So we want to pray kingdom-oriented prayers. And that's the kind of prayers you would pray. I mean, think about if you were Flavio and his family. What would you pray for as those 12 people? You would certainly pray that God would provide for you since, the neighbor, since your neighbors are no longer shopping in your store. You could pray for healing for those family members who have that degenerative disease. But I bet they also pray that they would continue to bear witness even under pressure. And that maybe their neighbors, none of whom in their village at that point knew Jesus, that their neighbors would come to know Jesus. Right? What better way for hostility to cease than that their unbelieving friends and family come to know Christ? That's what we pray for. So our first reflex in a hostile world is not hand-wringing. It's not, woe is me. It's not the sky is falling. We pray. That's what we do. Uh, there's a, a famous quote, and I can't remember who says it, but uh, who, sa- who says it? That's right. That's a proper subject verb agreement. Okay. I thought I went Chilton County there for a minute. Who say it? Um, right? When we work, we work. When we pray, God works. That's, what, that's why we gather in prayer. The second thing, so we're clear-headed, but then the second mark is he says in verse 8, above all, how do you think Peter should finish that? Above all, above everything else you can be doing together, above all, love one another earnestly, eagerly, since love covers a multitude of sins. We love one another. Not just a warm, fuzzy feeling, but actively engaged in loving each other. Uh, he references Proverbs ten twelve, which if you were to go and, and look at it, and you can do that this week, maybe as one of your devotionals this week, uh, spend some time in the Word, you can read Proverbs ten twelve and think about it. But he he contrasts love, which covers sins, to hatred, which stirs up strife. And again, think about the scenario. These people are under pressure. And what do you do when you're under pressure? I don't know what you do. I know what I do. I take out that pressure on the people who are closest to me. I lash out. Right? I can't do anything about the situation outside of me. And so I... Take it out on the people who are close to me. And so you can imagine for this, for this persecuted group of Christians that as they're being ostracized by the society around them, uh, it would be very easy 
as they gather together to get their feelings hurt by somebody inside with them and to take it out on them. And so Peter says, look, and look, love one another earnestly because love covers a multitude of sins. What that means is that when others wrong us, we don't let those wounds fester. Right? 1 Corinthians 13, we show patience, forgiveness. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Proverbs 9, 11, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is a man's glory to overlook an offense. That's what Peter's calling us to. To love instead of hold other people hostage. Imagine that something on your stove caught on fire. Would you put more fuel around the, around the fire? Would you gather other things to the stove that could burn also? Would you carry that fire out of your kitchen to your living room or your bedroom? But that's exactly what we do with strife within the church. Maybe we heap fuel on it. Right? So that, so that it grows more and more. Or we take that strife and we carry it to someone else. And so the, the fire starts in another part of the house. Would you just close the door and pretend that it's not there? No, you would put it out. That's what love does to strife. It extinguishes the fires of hatred. So we have to love one another earnestly. Which sounds really hard. And so we're back to prayer. We should pray. We need to pray so that we can love one another earnestly. Billy Graham said this, you cannot pray for someone, you cannot pray for someone and hate them at the same time. Even if you are asking God to restrain their evil actions, you should also be praying that he will change their hearts. Only eternity will reveal the impact of our prayers for others. How does that love demonstrate itself? He says in the very next verse, showing hospitality to one another without grumbling. So love is demonstrated by hospitality. And by the way, hospitality is not, is not entertaining. Right? It's not bringing out the china every time somebody comes over. Uh, in fact, it could mean that you still got laundry on the table uh, and whoever comes over helps you fold it. Right? Hospitality just means having an open door and an open table, that we, that we welcome other people into our space. And again, think about the situation of the first century. If people had been kicked out of their homes, where could they go? Well, to the homes of other Christians, right? It, it's a way that the family of God demonstrates its familiness, its hospitality. Uh, so it's not having nice things so that other people will come look at my nice things, it's just simply inviting you into my space. Now, not everybody can do that. Not everybody has space to do that. But Peter says we ought to do that. It's an expression of our love, and we ought to do it without grumbling, without complaining. I can't believe they're still here, right? I don't ever do that. But just saying, if that were you, right? Showing hospitality. So we have three marks so far. We're clear-headed. We show persistent love. We show hospitality. And then the fourth mark of a good church, he says in verse 10, has each, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another 
as good stewards of God's varied grace, God's diverse grace. So what Peter says is everybody has gifts. And they're gifts, right? They, they are given to you by God. And they're diverse. They're varied. It's interesting. He used that same word earlier in the letter when he talks about various trials. So here we have various gifts to su- support the church under its various trials. That God has supplied the church with everything it needs in us. And then he says this. We are stewards of that grace. That means we don't own them. They're his gifts, and we simply get to steward them, use them responsibly. So, when, so if we have the ability to speak words, and I don't think he's talking here just about the word ministry of the pastor. I think he is talking about the word ministry of the entire church. When we use our words, we need to realize that we speak word, God's words, God's truth. They're the words he supplies. And when we serve, right, when we use our hands and our feet to serve other people, again, we do that with the strength that God supplies. But so here's where this challenges 21st century Americans. Not only are we pluralistic, but we're also materialistic. Right. The the American home has grown in size even as the family has shrunk. So we now have more space. And less people to fill it than previous generations. Why is that? God has given us these gifts. Right? We talk about the three T's. Time, treasure, and talents. Will we use our time? Like all of those have been given to us by God. Time, treasure, and talents. Some of us have more time. Some of us have more treasure. Some of us have more talents. But all of them belong to God And we are to steward those for his grace, I mean, by his grace and for his glory. Paul would tell the elders uh, in Ephesus as he left them, he says, In all things I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. Do we believe that? Do we believe that it is more blessed to give? Some of us have been given a lot. Do we believe that it's more blessed to give than to receive? And all of this, Peter says, is for God's glory. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Do you imagine how powerless and weak these first century Christians would have felt? It was the exact, right? They were the exact opposite of power. It's the exact opposite of a position of strength, right? They were in a position of weakness. And so Peter concludes the main part of his letter by reminding them that they belong to the one who has all power and authority and dominion. That regardless of how weak and despicable their situation looked, that the Lord Jesus had them in his hand, and that to him belongs everything. And that is what enables us to love each other and to live with holiness. That's our hope. Is that your hope this morning? Let's pray. 
Father, we just ask that you would take this word and that you would apply it to our hearts. It's hard to live a distinct life. I would much rather be a chameleon uh, and blend in and disappear. But Jesus, you did not blend in. In fact, by your very life, uh, you welcomed the weary, but you also invited scorn and suffering. Would you help us to have that same mindset? May our, may our way of life, may our following you be so distinctly different that it images yours. And, Lord, would you help us to love each other well? That's a hard calling. Um, we're a bunch of sinners, and we, sin each, and we sin against each other. And so would you help us to demonstrate your forgiveness to one another? We pray that your love, in the same way that your love covers our sins, so also you would help us to love others and cover their sins, taking them to you instead. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.